Hi, this is Pastor Nelson Mercado. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast from the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. I hope you are blessed by today's message. Your hands with me. Thank you, Father. Indeed, we just sense your presence in our midst, and we are so grateful. We are worshiping you. We exalt you because you and you alone are King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you for the message of the songs of praise. Thank you for the message that Brother Sherman shared with us today. Oh, God, glorify yourself as we open your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to go into your um, bulletins. You have your study guide. For those of you who had not, maybe you're a guest and are visiting with us today, we have uh, been preaching a series, the Present Truth series, the Present Truth and Three Angels Messes, based on a book that I wrote. Uh, you can find that in any of the ABCs, where the series is based on the book. And uh, we uh, are our fifth part of the series, but really the second part on the investigative judgment. That was where, that's what we're talking about today. Thank you. The investigative judgment, part two. And so if you haven't been able to see or to hear the, the previous sermons, obviously, you can go to our uh, church YouTube channel, the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist YouTube, uh, YouTube channel, and, uh, and find the, uh, the sermons there, the Present Truth series, and of course, the, the first part of the investigative judgment we preached, I preached last Sabbath. And so I hope you can follow along. The words inside the blanks will be underlined on the screen. And so last Sabbath, we uh, started talking together about the investigative judgment, in particular, Revelation chapter 10. Our focus of our study was Revelation chapter 10. Uh, there, if you remember uh, Revelation chapter 10, uh, John describes a mighty angel. And this mighty angel has, uh, uh, had a little book in his hands. And, and based on the description of this mighty angel, we concluded that this mighty angel was who? It was Jesus Christ, right? It was Jesus, you know, because not only is he called mighty, he is described with divine-like characteristics. And so we looked at those characteristics as our symbol of the glory of God. So we concluded that Jesus is that mighty angel. We're not in any way saying that he is a created being, simply that, that he has a message. And, and thus he's a messenger, and the word for a messenger in the Greek is angelon, which is angel. This is why he's called an angel in this, in this case. And remember that uh, John sees this little book, and he's told to do something with this little book, right? He was told to eat this little book, and when he eats this little book, it was sweet in his mouth, but then what happened? It was bitter in his stomach. So John has a bittersweet experience. Now, when you, when you, when you say something that somebody had a bittersweet experience, you, you're really saying, this is not something positive, Sherman. You know, I think, you know, we, we, we experience the sweetness, but what we, what we remember is the bitterness. Yes, it's a bittersweet experience. So we studied this, we, we, we looked at this, and we compared also uh, Revelation 10 with uh, Daniel chapter 12. We saw that there is a parallel between Revelation 10 and Daniel chapter 12. And so we were able to conclude, friends, that the little book, in the hand of the mighty angel contained the prophecies of Daniel that Daniel could not understand. Remember, those prophecies were to be sealed until the time of the end. 
And at the time of the end, they would be open. They would be understood. We, we saw the time of the end uh, and, and ended in 1798 after the 1260 years. But Daniel in particular could not understand the 2300-year prophecy, the one that said in Daniel 8.14, and, and after the 2300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So the prophecy about the cleansing of the sanctuary in particular was what's written in that little book. And then, of course, the cleansing of the sanctuary is another way of saying the Day of Atonement because it was in the Day of Atonement that the sanctuary was cleansed. You think about the services in the earthly sanctuary. The reason it had to be a cleansing is because every day sinners brought their sacrifices to the tabernacle and they confessed the sins. They, they slew the, the animal and then the priest took some of that blood into the, into the tabernacle, sprinkled it and symbolically transferred the sin to the tabernacle. So at the end of the cultic year, the sanctuary had to be cleansed and that happened on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. And so the Day of Atonement, notice, was also a day of judgment for the children of Israel. Now, again, if John here is, 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 is talking about what's in this little book, a cleansing of the sanctuary, he, he must be wondering what sanctuary. Uh, by the time John writes the Revelation, there is no sanctuary. It's been destroyed already. And so he, has, he must be referring to a different sanctuary. We're, we're going to look at that in, in, in a little bit. So notice then the bittersweet experience uh, uh, that John experienced there in John chapter 10 uh, had to do with, it was a prophecy about the Millerites, about the experience, the bittersweet experience of the Millerites as their hopes and dreams about the coming of Jesus on October 22nd, 1844 did not happen. Because remember, they had interpreted that the mistake that they made was interpreting the earth as being that sanctuary. And remember what I said, that, that this was not unique to William Miller. William Miller did not invent that or pull that out of a hat because back in those days there had been others that before even William Miller looked at this had studied the 2300-year prophets. They made different calculations, but the earth was always the sanctuary. And so this was not unique to William Miller uh, interpreting that uh, the earth as a sanctuary. Okay? So this is that prophecy and notice, John is told in Revelation 10, 11, this is our scripture reading, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So after this bittersweet experience, despite this bittersweet experience, John is told to prophesy. To prophesy what? What was he to prophesy again? And this is where we left off in our study uh, uh, last Sabbath. What was he to prophesy again? Well, the answer to that is found in Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Notice what it says. Then I was given a reed, like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. In other words, John is being told here, don't give up. You have a bittersweet experience. Maybe you think it's a negative experience, but don't give up. And of course, this is a word of prophecy for the Millerites. And so the words prophesy again, notice, were meant for the Millerites who were told that in spite of their great disappointment, in spite of the, that bittersweet experience that they had, they were to continue. They were not to give up. They were to continue studying the 2300-year prophecy because there was something about it. Yeah, there was a mistake of interpreting the earth as a sanctuary, but God was pointing something out. And they were to continue studying this prophecy. Prophesy again. You know, it's important that we uh, know a little bit about our history. I've told you about uh, 
this book, uh, uh, Tell It to the World by C. Mervyn Maxwell, very good book about the history of Adventism. They based the movie Tell It to the World on that book. And if you haven't watched the movie, I encourage you to watch it, Tell It to the World, because it's very, very good, very on dot with, uh, uh, with, um, with our history, and it's very informative uh, and very important for you to understand. But I want to share with you a statement from the book Early Writings, page 18. It says there that in the early morning's hours, Hiram Edson, so the, this is Octo- now October 23rd, after the great disappointment, uh, uh, on the early morning hours, Hiram Edson and a few others went out to his barn to pray, and as they prayed, he felt assured that light would come. A little later, as Edson and a friend were crossing a cornfield to visit fellow Adventists, it seemed as if a hand touched his shoulder. He looked up to see, as if in a vision, the heavens opened, and Christ in the heavenly sanctuary entering into the most holy place, there to begin a work of mystery in behalf of his people, instead of coming forth from the most holy place to cleanse the world with fire as they, as they had taught. And so this is part of our history. You know, after the great disappointment, uh, 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 by the way, you know, this, uh, this took, you know, the, the preaching of Willie Miller really took the world by storms, if you will, at least the United States, okay? We're told that <clears throat> over a million people believed that Jesus was coming after the William Miller uh, study in, in, in the preaching. Now, you may think that's not a, a lot of people, but in the United States, there, there was just uh, under 18 million people that lived in the United States in those days. So you think about a million people out of 18 million, that's a big chunk. That's a big chunk. And after the great disappointment, many, of course, you know, they, they threw, their towel, threw, on the, threw the towel and left, but many stayed faithful. This is, of course, part of our history. But now... <clears throat> Maybe some of you are thinking, and, and, and many of our critics think the same thing, and they say, well, well, that's convenient. <laughs> they were wrong about, you know, the coming of Jesus, so they had to come up with some kind of excuse to save face. And again, many of our critics say that very thing, and unfortunately, many of our dear Adventist saints who are you know, being led by what they see online and what they hear online by those who have an axe to grind against us, um, sort of say the same thing. Well, that seems convenient. I I think that, and this is why maybe we should move away from this. Let me me show you an example, a statement from a gentleman by the name of Chris D. Putnam. He's not an Adventist, but he actually wrote a paper. The paper is titled, William Miller and a Great Disappointment, a Legacy of Heresy. And and let me show you what, what he says. He says, accordingly, the October 22nd, 1844 date was modified to denote when Christ entered the Holy of Holies in the heavenly sanctuary, not the second coming. This group became the Seventh-day Adventist Church of today, and this modification is called the Doctrine of the Pre-Advent Investigative Judgment. Frankly, it seems like a lame excuse. Miller was simply mistaken. And many feel that way. Maybe some of you feel that way. And so the question is, was this really a mistake or was it biblical providence? Was it a mistake or biblical providence? Let's go, let's go to our scripture. We're going to start reading again from, verses, from verse 11 in chapter 10 all the way through 11.2. You must prophesy against. Remember, now he has this bittersweet experience. He eats the book, sweet in his mouth, bitter in his stomach. 
You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there, but leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now, I, I start from chapter 10 because many people unfortunately they think that well if it's chapter 11 it must be a different vision it must be a different topic but remember there's no chapter divisions and verse divisions in the in the original manuscripts it's, it's all one line of thought okay now after this bittersweet experience from eating the little book which contained the portions the uh, prophetic portions of the book of daniel the time prophecies john is told to prophesy again prophesy what well the question is seen there in verse 1 He was told, in essence, to measure the temple of God. In other words, what John had to continue prophesying, and thus the Millerites, had to do with what? It had to do with a sanctuary. Whatever he had to prophesy is something that had to do with the temple, with the sanctuary. Now, again, which sanctuary? Because we think about Daniel... Daniel 8.14, he's told after 2,300 years, the, uh, the, the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Remember, he is told by Gabriel in verse 17 that this vision is for the time of the end. So that's 2,300 years into his future. By the time John writes this, there is no temple. You know, the earthly temple, was, the Jewish temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. And, and John writes Revelation around 95 A.D. So this, John could not have been talking about this temple. Because it didn't exist anymore. It didn't exist anymore. Uh, uh, and so, uh, as you follow the book of Revelation, you find uh, that the, the book of Revelation has a, a sanctuary motif. A sanctuary motif. And you, and you find uh, uh, the sanctuary being referred to many times in the book of Revelation. And every time John refers to the sanctuary, he's talking about the heavenly one. It's the heavenly sanctuary. And so, friends, the temple being measured in, in, verse, in chapter 11 and verse 2 must also be the heavenly one. Must also be the heavenly. We can conclude that safely, that it's, it has to do, the prophesy again has to do with the temple, and it has to do with the heavenly one. It has to do with the heavenly one. So let's break these passages down. Back to Revelation 11.1. 1. Then I was given a reed, like a measuring rod, And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. So notice a central task that John had was to measure the temple and the people that are there. But what does this measuring mean? I mean, was this that he literally had to take a measuring tape and see how wide the temple and how high the temple, that he had to measure the people? Or was there something deeper into this measuring? There certainly is something deeper there. Because the word for measure in the Greek, it's the Greek metreo, occurs 11 times in the New Testament. And eight of those times is the word that is used for judgment. It's used for judgment. Let me give you an example. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. This is the words of Jesus. And Jesus says, judge not that you may not be judged. For with what you judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So notice that Jesus links the, this concept of measuring with judgment, with judgment. 
Yeah. And so uh, we can conclude then that to measure means to judge according to any rule or standard. So John is told, prophesy again. The prophesy again had to do with a sanctuary, and his task was to measure. This measure has to do with judgment. Because that's what the word means. It has to do with judgment. Now, one of the keys of interpreting the book of Revelation is understanding that two-thirds of the book of Revelation are, are, are allusions to the Old Testament. Two-thirds. So there's a lot of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. And, and, and in the Old Testament, measure me, measuring involved judgment with regard as to who lived and who died. Let me give you an example. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 2, speaking of David... It says, then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death. And with one line, he measured those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought uh, tribute. And so notice here that uh, uh, David, you know, he's not like he was measuring literally. Measuring was, has, uh, had to do with deciding, with making that judgment as to who would live and who would die. Making the difference who would live and who would die. He was making a judgment. But his talk is talk, uh, mentioned as measuring. It's measuring. So again, what we see here is that this concept of measuring is not a literal measuring, but it has to do with judging. With judging. Now, you know, when we talk about the, the Day of Atonement, obviously, the, the first place we, we go to to find about the Day of Atonement is the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 16 is where we, we see it clearly. Let me show you Leviticus 16.33, because Leviticus 16.33 is probably the best explanation to Revelation 11.1. 1. Notice what it says. Then he, that is the priest, shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of the meeting, and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests, and for all the people on the assembly. So notice that atonement was made for the priests themselves, it was made for the sanctuary, it was made for the altar, and for the congregation. The only other place in the Bible where the sanctuary, the altar, and the people are, men are mentioned together in the concept of measuring is in Revelation 11.1. There's only one difference, though. Let me show you the comparison. So again, Leviticus 16.33, he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people on the assembly. In Revelation, this is what John is told, then I was given a measuring rod, and, I, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple, the altar, and those who worship there. The only difference that we find in Revelation is that the priests are not mentioned. Why are the priests are not mentioned? It was so simple, because this is already in the heavenly sanctuary. Jesus is our priest. He doesn't need atonement. And so this is the only reason why it's not, he's not mentioned, the priests are not mentioned in Revelation. So we see how they compare, how they compare. And so there's also, uh, 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 in, in the Old Testament, another allusion to Revelation 11.1 1 in Ezekiel's temple. Did you know that, 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 that Ezekiel describes a temple that's supposed to be built in chapters 40 to 44? I encourage you to read those. We're not going to go over these passages. It's going to take too long. Okay? But... This was God's intention had the children of Israel done what they're supposed to do, okay? Uh, the, the temple. And, and Ezekiel describes this temple. And in Ezekiel's vision, the temple was measured for the purpose of being restored. And there are two important uh, points here, interesting points about Ezekiel's vision that I want to bring out. 
the measuring of the temple, because it, it had to be done as well in Ezekiel's vision, came on the tenth day of the first month, which was the Day of Atonement. So on the Day of Atonement, there was a measurement being done. We know the Day of Atonement is the Day of Judgment. And also, the measurement was for reference to two things, the temple itself and the people, just like we find in, in, in Leviticus, just like we find in Revelation 11.1. And so what we find here, friends, is that, is that the Day of Atonement, there was a theme about the Day of Atonement in Revelation 11.1. That's what we see. The Day of Atonement was, of course, the most solemn day for the Israelites, for the Jewish calendar. It was a day of measuring within the Israelite cultic year. And that day had an atmosphere of the final judgment because it was a day that was separated those people who were consecrated to God and accepted and those who were not and rejected and were cut off from the people. That happened on the Day of Atonement. And so notice then, measuring the temple and the people there, who worship there in Revelation 11 1, is related to the sealing. The sealing of God's people that we read about in Revelation chapter 7. The measuring is for the purpose of deciding who's going to be sealed. In other words, who will live and who will die. Who is accepted and who is not. That's what the measurement is for. That's what the judging is for. But now let's go to verse 2. Revelation eleven two. 2. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple. And do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now, if you remember, uh, as you studied the, the, the sanctuary and the temple services, the outer court of the temple in Jerusalem was a place outside the temple where the Gentiles were allowed to worship. It was outside the temple. They could not go in the court where, because this was reserved for the priests, the Israelites, and the Jewish women. So the outer court was for the Gentiles. It was for the Gentiles. Now, the word that is used for Gentiles here is the Greek ethnoi, which simply means the, the nations, the nations surrounding them. In other words, the nations that weren't the Jews. And in Revelation, the book of Revelation, the Gentiles, these nations, these ethnoi, are actually the forces hostile to God and his people. Which is why John describes them as those who have trampled the city for 42 months. Now, 42 months should be familiar to you. That should be ringing a bell. Because we've talked about this period of time before. 42 months is equal to what? 1,260 prophetic days. 30 days in the the Jewish calendar times 42, 1,260. And we saw this last time, 1,260 prophetic days. We use our rule for interpreting time prophecies, which says that a prophetic day equals a literal year. So 1,260 prophetic days equal 1,260 literal years. So 42 months, in this case, equal 1,260 literal years. Now, we already saw this last time because we, we know that this period of time is also mentioned back in Daniel chapter 7 as time, times, and half of a time. And that is the period of time where the little horn rises from the beast, right? And, 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 he, and he destroys three of the little horns, right? The, the Herioli, the Vandals, the Ostrogoths. The Ostrogoths were the last tribe that was defeated. And once they're defeated, the papacy rules unopposed. And, that, and, they're, and they're defeated in 538 A.D. 
And so at that point, the, the, the little horn rises on a pole and rules for exactly 1260 years and takes you to the year 1798 when Napoleon sends General Berthier and takes the pole prisoner. He dies a year later in exile. And that period of time, that, 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 that influence and power that the, the pope had for those 1260 years comes to an end. And so this is the same period of time. The enemies of God are trampling upon God's people for exactly that period of time, 1260 years, which is our 42 months. Now, the measuring, or the Gentiles, notice, are excluded from the measuring. Right? This is where verse 2 says. They are excluded from the measuring. You see, the measuring divides the genuine Christians from those who profess Christianity but are actually are apostate. It is to profess Christians. And it, as it was in the case of Ezekiel's uh, vision, let me show you here. In Ezekiel's vision, Ezekiel 44, 9, notice what God says. Thus says the Lord, no foreigner, uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh, shall enter my sanctuary, including any who is a foreigner who is among the children of Israel. So even there, we see the same thing. The Gentiles weren't part of the measuring. They weren't part of it. And so in John's vision... The Gentiles are excluded from this. Notice, the Gentiles do not belong to the community of believers. Only the worshipers of God are measured. Like the Day of Atonement, the judgment was only for God's people, not for the nations around them. It was just for God's people. Now, if you're familiar, again, the reason why I'm talking about this is because we should be familiar with the doctrine of the investigative judgment. And many are not. And so this is, this is why I wrote the book. This is why we're talking about this, because we need to be familiar with it. Now, uh, uh, the, the investigative judgment is simply the heavenly day of atonement in which the heavenly sanctuary is cleansed at the end of the 2300 years of Daniel 8.14. At the end of the 2300 years, the heavenly sanctuary would be cleansed. That's the sanctuary that's being talked about. And then you know that those who are judged are the only, only the ones who make a profession of accepting Jesus. It's not everybody that is judged, but those who've accepted Jesus. Do you remember we talked about this last time, is that there are three phases in the judgment. Remember what the phases were? What is it? The investigative. What's the second one? The millennial, right? The, the thousand years. And then the executive at the end of the thousand years, right? We're talking about the investigative component here. There's, three, there's two others. Let me show you from the book Great Controversy, page 480. She says it better than I can. She says, in a typical service, only those who had come before God with confession and repentance um, and whose sins through the blood of the sin uh, offering were transferred to the sanctuary had part in the service of the Day of Atonement. So in the great day of final atonement and investigative judgment, the only cases considered are those of the professed people of God. The judgment of the wicked is a distinct and separate work and takes place at a latter period. Okay? So we're talking about the investigative judgment that happens first. The wicked, those who don't profess Christianity... They are judged afterwards. The, the righteous, of course, judge them during the thousand years, determining why they, they, they weren't saved. And at the end of the thousand years, they resurrect again, you remember, and they face judgment. And then finally, fire comes down from heaven out of God and devours them. That's the executive judgment. 
But that doesn't happen until a latter period. The first part of the judgment is for God's people. This is why Peter said it this way. Judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it, if it begins at us, what shall be the end of those that do not obey the gospel? Friends, you tell me. And of course, based on what we studied last Sabbath and today, is this investigative judgment a mistake or is it biblical providence? Now, again, some, of you, some, of, some people may say, well, it's still a mistake. And why would God allow a mistake to happen? Why would God allow William Miller to make a mistake? I mean, that's a, it's a fair question. And God doesn't make mistakes, people say. So why would God allow work through mistake? You know, God can work through anything. But I want you to think about this logically. The reason over one million people in the United States, out of, of, out of 17 million, were believers now. They were, they were following, they understood what William Miller was preaching, they believed that Jesus was coming, was because that's what Je- uh, William Miller was proclaiming. He was proclaiming the greatest event in the history of humanity, which is the coming of Christ. Everybody wants to be with Jesus. And so if, if, if we have a prophecy that points exactly to where Jesus comes, everybody became interested. There was a, a great following. Of course, he didn't come. Again, many decided to throw in the towel and left, but many still stayed around and continued studying. But because this was about the coming of Jesus, it, it, took, it, it took the world by storm. Now, think about what would have happened had God worked through Miller and, and, and guided William Miller to study the 2300-year prophecy, and he had concluded, well, that there's a judgment in heaven at the end of the 2300 years. Do you think that would have taken the world by storm as talking about the second coming of Christ? Probably not, because it wasn't a big deal. The coming of Christ is. Knowing about a judgment that's placing heaven, well, maybe some people would be interested, but it would not have taken the world by storm. And so the reason God works through this mistake is because he needed a way to bring the sanctuary to the proper heights, so that people would study it. And this, so this is why this is, while, well, yes, it was a mistake that God allowed William Miller to do it, he was guiding it, and it was pro- prophesied because we see it in Revelation 10, and the reason is because he needed to bring the sanctuary to this proper place, because the sanctuary is part of the present truth. And John is given his vision in Revelation 10 about the Millerites, what they were going to face at the great disappointment, but he was told what to do. He was told what to do. He had to prophesy again, and his prophecy had to do with measuring the heavenly temple, this concept of judgment. So let's review. The work of measuring in Revelation 11.1 implies a work of judgment. John is told prophesy again after the bitter sweet experience. Whatever he was to prophesy again had to do with the temple, had to do with measuring, which was a work of judgment. This is the judgment that took place, of course, in the earthly sanctuary, the Day of Atonement. And it is the judgment that started in the heavenly sanctuary in 1844 when the heavenly sanctuary was cleansed. When the heavenly sanctuary was cleansed. You see, friends? See how great it is to study the Bible in context? We can learn a whole lot of things. Now, friends, I don't want to just leave you with information. Information is good. Information is good. Uh, it's, it, 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 it's, uh, it's great that we understand what we believe and why we believe it. But information should motivate us to do something about it. Something with it 
and something about it. And the first thing that this, this, this uh, news, this doctrine of the investigative judgment should motivate us to do is that if you're not at peace with God, if Jesus isn't your Savior and Lord, that's the first thing you need to do. Because the reason the judgment is good news, it is good news for those who accepted Jesus. Remember, the judgment makes the difference between those who truly have accepted Christ and are accepted and those who are just, it's all words, it's all facade, but eventually are rejected. And if Jesus isn't really your Savior, if you haven't taken that step and made him Lord of your life, then you may be part of the apostate, and maybe you're the ones who are going to be thrown out. But there is assurance, we can have assurance of salvation, because our salvation depends upon Christ did, and if you receive the gift of salvation, then you don't have anything to worry about. And so the first thing should motivate you is to, is to receive Jesus and make him Lord of your life and surrender him, uh, yourself to him. But it should also motivate us to do what John did. John is told to prophesy again. The Seventh-day Adventists, we are to be familiar with the three angels' messages. This is what the present truth is. This is what the premise of the book is all about. These messages highlight what we need to proclaim to the world. And the first angel says, fear God and give glory to him because the judgment has come. Because there's a judgment happening right now. We have a responsibility. What is our responsibility then? Our responsibility is that we must prophesy again. The news of the investigative judgment taking place right now is present truth. It is the truth for this time. It is part of the truth for this time that God has trusted to us so that we tell others so that we can prepare a world to meet Jesus. Will you accept the challenge today, friends? I hope you accept the challenge because this is part of our responsibility. It is our duty. Now, some people, as we end up today, you say, you say well, you know, it's, it's okay, this, this is great. We, we, we can pinpoint the judgment is happening, but you still ask the question, why is this judgment even necessary? And furthermore... One of the challenges that many Adventists are going through today, which is one reason they're trying to push the investigative judgment out, is because they see a contradiction between the assurance of salvation and the judgment. Now, the logic is, well, if there is a judgment that is going to go on where God separates the righteous from the unrighteous, those who profess Christ with those who are truly consecrated, if that's going to happen in the judgment, then I can't, have, I can't be sure of my salvation. They see it as a contradiction. But we're going to see next time that it isn't a contradiction. And that with the investigative judgment, you can definitely have the assurance of salvation. So why is the investigative judgment necessary? We're going to talk about that next time. Now, if you've read the book, you'll notice that that part is not in the book. Because I, I continued studying this after I wrote the book, and so this is not, if I do a revision of the book, I maybe put it in there. But I didn't talk about this in the book. This is an, an addition that I'm, I'm, I'm sharing with you next time. And so we're, we'll, we'll do that third part uh, in a couple of weeks. It'll be the first Sabbath of October during Sabbath evangelism. Uh, we'll talk about why is the uh, judgment even necessary. Amen, friends? Thanks for joining us. If you're ever in the Nashville area, Come and visit us at the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're located at 2800 Blair Boulevard in Nashville, Tennessee. You may also visit us at nfsda.org.